Hi, welcome to the Firefly Movement podcast. My name is Alyssa Williamson. The Firefly Movement is a group of licensed professional counselors and marriage and family therapists in the Dallas area. We're here to talk mental health. We occasionally like to talk about the Enneagram and we like to interview people who are making a difference in the world to find out how they got in touch with, started developing and using their unique gifts in the hopes that you'll start using yours. You can nominate people that are lighting up your world at our website, fireflymovement.org. Here's the show. everyone. It's Alyssa. I am really excited to get this episode out to you guys because it's been a while since we've been able to drop a new one with 2020 being the way that it is. We're covering a really hot topic today and it's narcissism and recovering from narcissistic abuse. So we had a specialist come on, Shannon Higgins, who's an LPC supervisor in Plano, Texas, and she specializes in abuse recovery in general and relational abuse recovery. But one of the areas that she really targets and helps people with is if they've been in a relationship with someone with narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic traits and how to recover from that. So if you've ever asked yourself, am I dating a narcissist? Is my spouse a narcissist? Am I a narcissist? Or maybe you're just into true crime podcasts. I don't know. But this is a great episode for you. And I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people because this issue is way more common than anybody realizes. Even as a therapist who works in abuse recovery, I learned a lot from her. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So here's Shannon. Well, I'm here with Shannon Higgins, and I'm so excited to have you on the Firefly Movement Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, part of the reason that we really wanted to have you on is because you do so much great work with people recovering from abuse Mm -hmm. and from, as you call it, relational abuse. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Or do you call it relationship abuse? Relational. Relational. Okay. Relational abuse. Um, And there's, I mean, it's just such a prevalent issue that you see all over the place I'm sure yes yeah especially now with everyone having to do shelter in place oh wow. because the tension's high yeah and so it has increased like exponentially I wish I had statistics for you but yeah it's been high as well as child abuse which that yeah, still is relational abuse yeah I guess yeah that is, if you think about it that way yeah yeah and I'm sure that that's something that was going on beforehand, but I'm, I'm sure that, that just brings it out and makes it even more it does. Yeah. apparent. So, well, all the more reason to have you on right now as there's so, yeah. there's so much tension of people going on in the world and then so many stressors that people have um, and people's lives keep going in mm-hmm. the middle of that and their relationships keep going. And so things don't stop just because COVID's here or right. because there's social change happening. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And imagine yeah. that going on outside yeah. increases what's going on behind the doors, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you're married and you have two boys, right? Yes, yes. And uh, they're teenage boys. So, one just graduated, or I'm going to do air quotes, graduated Yeah. <laughs> from high school. We had a neat little neighborhood parade for him um, so that was really good well not just him but the seniors yeah and my other one will be 16 4th of July 
Oh, wow. Yeah. These so that's exciting. I know they are. And, you know, it's just so surreal as a mom to be at this juncture with your kids. I can only imagine. Yeah. So it's just strange. And then in my <laughs> neighborhood, there's this whole new, you know, influx of young moms. So that's been interesting Aww. to watch. Yeah. Um, so I am a boy mom, and I love that because I grew up being a jock and not a domesticated <laughs> girl. <laughs> So we've had so much fun with that. Yeah. And uh, I've been a therapist for 20 years. And I have started doing this, gosh. Um, I was first at the Altshuler Clinic doing family work. Oh, okay. And so I did that. And then I went to Genesis Women's Outreach. And wow. thus, that's where my passion okay. began. Okay, so a lot of women that are fleeing domestic violence. Yes. So they specialize with sexual abuse and domestic violence. Okay. And so the outreach center is different than the shelter because we had women that were survivors that have been out of the relationship. Okay. And it didn't matter how long. And then we also had women who were in the relationship. Mm. And so we could you know, have any of those situations at any given time. Um, So we did have a security guard to make sure that, you know, they would walk the women and us to our cars because that was always a potential threat. Yeah. Um, I learned so much there that I just became super passionate because you would get every single face in the nation, right? It's yeah. just like the United Nations came. Mm-hmm. Every, you know, status of our social economic, you it know, really representation. Does not it doesn't. Yeah. And so that also just bewildered me that, mm-hmm. you know, it's that pervasive. Yeah. And so I'd had the best training ever. And so that's also what, you know, developed my passion. Yeah. But interestingly enough, it's then that I learned that my upbringing was abusive. We had wow. never labeled it domestic violence. I just knew that it was really rough. Wow. And so, you know, I heard people saying, you know, my dad was a tough man. And so that's all I thought, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But then when I was training there and, you know, just being immersed in the work, but I also had a supervisor because I was an intern. Mm-hmm. Um, in my time with my supervisor, you know, we would be opening that up. And so... That's a good supervisor. I know. That's fantastic. <laughs> and so that, again, developed even more compassion, um, really getting that clear yeah. about what it's like to be in that type of situation. So obviously I did my own work at that time too. Yeah. So that's incredibly challenging though mm-hmm. to be in suddenly I mean obviously like you were an adult and you're safe and it's a different you're in a different place when you're in that space than if you're still, you know, in the home you grew up in. Yeah. Or something like that. But to be recovering almost alongside of your clients, that's incredibly emotionally challenging. You know, it really was, but yeah. I was so young that I really found it to be a good challenge. Yeah. Um, at that time, I was really able to take was on this, challenges. Was this before kids? Yes. <laughs> I, call that, I call that BC. 
so BC, I had a lot of fervor. Yeah. And so. I know. I'm in the weeds right now with a one-year-old and a seven-year-old. And so that really resonates with me where I'm like, (laughs) additional challenges besides my job and my family. I'm like, "Mm, do I want to do this right now? Yeah. So at that time, I was kind of like, bring it on. Yeah. That's awesome. So I did a lot of my own work, which is fantastic. And and so we really got a lot of trauma-informed, you know, training. Yeah. And Parkland ER was partnering also with us at the time. Um, a psychiatrist was doing a big research project. So he would come during our clinicals yeah. and educate us. So I just couldn't have asked for a better internship than that. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. That's life-changing on mm-hmm. so many different levels just for you. And yeah. then that helped you decide the, the career path, it sounded like, that you were going to It really take. did. I Okay, after having kids, though, I did a little diversion because I wanted to spend more time with them. So mm-hmm. I became a behavior specialist for uh, Carrollton Farmers Branch. And so, but that lasted just a year. I was going to say, is that like yeah. less challenging in some ways? That sounds, <laughs> that sounds like a challenging job as it well. It was great. Actually, yeah. it was really great. And I would have stayed with it, but, you know, it just wasn't the challenge that I needed. <laughs> so I went right back to, um, well, I did go and start private practice with two psychiatrists at that time. Wow. And so, and that's really how I finessed my gift is that I was able to really use what I knew and, you know, it was all, you know, working with several different, you know, issues, psychosocial issues and diagnoses. But again, just knowing that often with women, there was that um, issue, but often you had to peel the layers to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, just from what you're saying, and I, I know this is really prevalent in our society, but I'm, I'm not sure that the general public understands mm-hmm. how prevalent it is. I mean, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, it's so sad because really it's one in three women, you know, that are getting abused and so it is that you know that's a massive yeah it's it's just that bad and so in men it's like one in four and so yeah it's really high and that's on the rise and again you know it's because women are going out and they're working you know and so there's more stress on women Um, it's the dual career thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that has also been what's increased that number. So now some of our, um, programs like family place, I'm not sure if Genesis has started this yet. Um, you know, we have hope store. Um, there's plenty other that I'm not naming. Um, but they are starting to have programs for men. Wow. Yeah. And it's really necessary, especially, the hidden abuse that I really specialize more with. Okay. Um, well, they're all equal, basically. Mm-hmm. But hidden abuse is known as narcissistic abuse in our society. Mm-hmm. But clinicians really do call it hidden abuse. Okay. Because it's so pervasive, and it really is hard for other people to detect it. And it's done so subtly over time. And it's like financial abuse, spiritual abuse, things that you really can't see. Yeah. And it's happening over such a long period of time that it's so deceptive to the person that's the target. Hmm. But also, 
clinicians should not be diagnosing someone that they don't work with. And so it's better for us to err on hidden abuse than to be titling or labeling, Uh, you know, somebody else. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And Mm -hmm. I'm guessing the vast majority of the time, the abuser is not showing for therapy with their own therapist. Or I know it's not appropriate to do couples counseling if there's abuse going on. Right. um, which I think is important to say here in yes. this setting. Do not go to couples counseling if you're being abused. Don't do it. Very We true. don't recommend that. No. Um, but. Individual therapy. Individual, yes. And, yeah. you know, if they do, I think that's great. And if they stay committed to it. Yeah. And it's on their volition then that means that they're at a level, because we consider narcissism to be on a spectrum. Okay. And so there's a healthy level of narcissism, like self-care. tell me about that. What does that mean? Because I don't hear that ever. (laughs) So if you look, if you think of a line, and on the far left is healthy narcissism, and on the far right is like Machiavellian Mm. narcissism, we also call it the dark triad. Okay. Which is like any social personality disorder, um, sociopathy, psychopathy. Okay. And those are the ones that you hope they're in jail for a very long time. Okay. <laughs> but many don't always go in jail. So um, there's a book called The Sociopath Next Door okay. for a reason. So that's the very far side. So the middle is narcissistic personality disorder traits, okay. not the diagnosis. So from the middle further towards the healthy part, there is like possibility for change. Hmm. But again, it's always based on the individual. Gotcha. So yeah, but there's possibility for change as you get closer to the uh, healthy narcissism. So someone who um, has healthy narcissism, what does that look like? What would, how would someone maybe identify that or identify that in themselves. So it's a person who can take care of themselves, but also consider other person's needs and wants and, you know, empathize with other people. It's somebody who has like a really good conscience. Mm. So they're going to have a moral compass. They're going to always consider the consequences of their actions before they do something. And there's somebody who they have like a really good, solid self-esteem. There's probably chinks in the armor, but they're people who really at the end of the day know that they're a good person. Hmm. And they can, re- like there's a good amount of resilience. So their life isn't perfect by any means. I don't know anybody's that is, but yeah. they have resilience. Bad things happen to good people. So that's kind of healthy narcissism. That's so interesting because, yeah. I mean, that just sounds like a healthy person, yes. you know? Yeah. And that's not a term that I think we throw around at all. I know. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, though, is that um, neuroses is next. Okay. And whenever we think of neurotic, people use that and throw it around as kind of a bad thing. But it's actually not. Huh. It's actually healthy. Because, again, it just means we have more chinks in the armor, but it possesses a lot of the same things as the healthy. Okay. It just means that the empathy might be, you know, changed just a tad, that the self-esteem 
has to be worked on more. Mm -hmm. So it just means that this person has become a little more jaded than the other person. Okay. So it's still healthy because it's actually more realistic. Okay. So that's the difference between neuroses and the healthy person. Okay. So this person's lived through life and, you know, they've been worn and torn, but they can bounce back. So trauma definitely has happened to this person, um, but they have been, you know, able to bounce back. But they might have a lower threshold for um, tolerance. They may have a lower threshold for anger, those sort of things. So mm -hmm. managing is yeah. a little more difficult for this person. Okay. Regulating a little more difficult for this person. Okay. So would you say that everyone is kind of on the spectrum or just some people on the spectrum? Everybody is like either in the neuroses or the healthy. Okay. And, and we can climb up depending on where we are in life. Yeah. So, but where the narcissistic traits are, mm -hmm. that's the toxic person. Okay. So narcissistic traits is that they have like four of the criteria and there's nine criteria. Okay. I can't rattle them all off unless I have the book open, <laughs> but I do know the significant yeah. ones yeah. of NPD, the full blown narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. And so that's why at that you know, juncture, they can change because they do realize that they do have a lot of narcissistic traits. Okay. So there is more knowledge there and there is some self-awareness. And so that's why they have the possibility of change, but we don't have, you know, a lot of people there, but narcissism is on the rise. So, in fact, what's interesting is this is another one in four okay. so of people, yeah, that fall into narcissistic traits and up. Wow. That's yeah. a lot of people. I know. Okay. So, and I know you said that you can't rattle all of them off, but what are a few of the things that would come up as far as traits when, when someone's getting into that more toxic Zone. Okay, so the very important ones that are so harmful to others is like the exploitation of others okay. um, for their own gain, um, the constant need for admiration, the grandiose behaviors, um, and that can also be the opposite. So they may not have grandiose behaviors, they may have very passive aggressive behaviors, hmm. and so all of which for their own personal gain. So they also have um, where they think they're the most important person. And so that is to the demise of others too, because they do think that they're more important than others, that they have something special and that it is better than others, whether it's intelligence, it's anything, but that's also one of the traits. Hmm. So those would be the ones that can be most harmful because that gives the inability for a dialogue. Okay. So it's very difficult to have any kind of two-way, you know, interaction because if they're all knowing and they need constant admiration and all the other ones that yeah. I just mentioned, mm -hmm. then you're kind of looking at a wall. <laughs> yeah, I've got you a few know? people running through my head. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's, that's just to name a few. I yeah. wish my head could rattle all nine. 
No, but that's really, t- I think that that's telling for people. <laughs> um, and I know that a lot of people, when they, you know, I, I think. Oh, and lack of empathy. That's like, I should just thing. roll that off. Well, that's the most harmful. I have a lot of clients that will maybe have identified someone in their life, like a parent. Mm-hmm as being someone that has a lot of narcissistic traits Mm -hmm. and then they'll come in and I don't know if this is something you hear a lot, but they're afraid then that they're narcissistic. Yeah. And I was wondering if you had any insight as to why that happens where you might have a parent or someone who might have a lot of those traits and then a child is like very afraid that they're having the same traits as their parent. Oh my gosh. I get it because the treatment of, the child is so awful that they don't want to be the same. Yeah. And the sad part is is that they grow up out of the present. They're checked out. And so that's why a lot of children of narcissists grow up with um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder mm. because they're so wrapped around surviving that parent But they don't have their own identity Mm -hmm. because that parent is so complex. Mm -hmm. So that parent is either going to be extremely passive-aggressive like a covert, you know, narcissist, or the overt. And regardless, everything has to please that parent or there's hell to pay. Mm -hmm. So that's why the child does not want to be anything like that parent because the consequences are so steep that they have to really watch every move they make when they're home. So the tension you can just cut with a knife. And so the whole family operates that way. How it appears to everybody else is a perfect family because that father or that mother requires that, Mm. even if they're not perfect. Yeah. So they have a huge... Uh, standard for others but not for themselves Mm. and so that's also why a child would not want to be like their parent because to live up to that parent's expectations is next to impossible Mm -hmm. so that's where the not good enough would come from or the unlovable core belief would come from yeah, and I think the thing that's so interesting to me is so many of the clients that I've worked with who have survived a narcissistic parent or a parent with narcissistic traits that they've identified mm-hmm. is that these are people who are deeply empathetic. And so I'm, you know, sitting there like with my head cocked in my therapy chair being like, wait, but you're really, and I'm constantly pointing that out, you're really empathetic. Yeah. I don't think that that lines up at all with what's interesting is those of us that specialize with abuse the rule is if someone's extremely worried about being a narcissist they're not a narcissist yeah yeah (laughs) that just means they're worried about how they're perceived yeah and they're that's like empathy right there yeah right Mm -hmm. because they don't want to hurt other people exactly yeah yeah it's just so interesting to see that theme play out um so if you're listening to this and you're worried about whether or not you're a narcissist, rest assured. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You more likely had a narcissistic yeah. parent mm-hmm. or influence or something along those lines. Yeah. 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 Um, so, th- so then you have people that have narcissistic traits, and then I'm guessing the spectrum continues further towards yeah, the more psychopathy, very pathological, dangerous. So, for instance, um, like 
Invisible Man, the movie. Mm -hmm. That's an extreme case, right? And, of course, it's fictional. Yeah. But there are cases that can be that extreme. There are women or men that have had to go underground um, and change their identity because it's been so pervasive. All those con man stories that... The Dear John and... The Dirty John, yeah. Or Dirty John, yeah, Dirty John, yeah. Those are true, and it's so sad to say, but they are out there, and they are happening in large numbers. And that is what women do more often, is the financial and spiritual abuse. Really? So there are lots of con men, but there are lots of con women. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so just for people that may not be familiar with what financial abuse or spiritual abuse looks like, what is what does that look like? So the financial abuse is that they will actually um, seek out somebody to take care of them. So they will either not have money on their own and maybe not even have a job. And they are purposely trying to find someone. And it doesn't have to be a sugar daddy or a sugar mama. They could actually be somebody who lives like, you know, middle class life, upper middle class, but just enough. And so, but they will like sponge off of them and they will say that they have this great job. They'll just con their way into that family. But then there's also the stories of, you know, taking advantage of people who are wealthy, gold diggers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also... They may be robbing them of their money while they're there, okay. putting it in certain accounts, embezzling, all those sort of things is financial abuse. It can also happen if they're divorced, if they go through a divorce. They can take someone for everything, and they will often punish them. And I've seen divorces last 10 years Yeah. over money. Yeah. So... That's financial abuse. The spiritual abuse component is that they will sometimes seek out a person who is religious so that they look good. And that's kind of the cloak of empathy. Mm. And that's what they can hide under to look like they're a person who might be spiritual, religious, etc. And then the uh, person will hold over their partner. You know, you can't divorce me because it's against the, you know... Catholic Church or it's against the teachings in the Bible Um, and so they'll use Mm. that religion or whatever that person believes in against them Mm. even though they're not the true believer and they know that their partner is yeah and so that's a form of spiritual abuse okay yeah wow and there's many others, too. That's a really too. good way of describing that for people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I know that you are a Christian and very involved in your church mm-hmm. and youth group and mentoring girls and that kind of stuff. And so I could only imagine how powerful it is for you as a therapist that specializes in this yeah. to be a part of a congregation where you can be like, uh, yeah, that's not okay. And, right. you know, it's just because somebody's, you know, whipping out a Bible doesn't mean that they're right. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, that happened mm-hmm. to me. So mm-hmm. um, my uh, children's father actually did that. That okay. he, you know, said this is against the church. It's, you know, not in the Bible. And he would just throw all those sort of threats at me. Yeah. Um, and then, interestingly enough, the Catholic guilt got to mm-hmm. me. And I met with the priest privately. 
And he, like, cut me off, like, in the middle of a sentence (laughs) describing what I was experiencing. And he said, oh, honey, stop. Oh, wow. He goes, you have, you need to get out of there. God does not want you to hurt like this. Wow. So that's an interesting perspective. That's powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. So, yeah. Sometimes you just need to go to the source. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think that's also why, I mean, part of why we do this podcast too is just be a resource so that people who are, Mm -hmm. you know, pastors or clergy or, you know, they need to be knowledgeable of these issues too. Mm -hmm. And this isn't something that they teach you in seminary. Yeah. And I know it'd be nice if they did, but even as clinicians, I mean, different clinicians specialize in different things and not every clinician is going to be knowledgeable about this particular issue, even though it's so prevalent. Oh yeah. And I mean, that's what I love about my church is that they really do take a stance. Um, and so I actually, you know, was able to get help through my church. Um, and so that's one thing that has me there is because I know that they will you know, support any of their parishioners that do experience this. And that's hard to find. That's awesome. So, yeah. So it's really great. I love it. You yeah. Know? And if you're in an unhealthy church situation, don't settle for that because there's good ones. Oh, yeah. Out there. Yeah. Yeah. And that they will actually, you know, use the Bible to say that God doesn't want anyone to suffer abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You said something really interesting earlier. You're saying that narcissism is on the rise. And I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about that, like how they know that and do they have any theories as to why Mm -hmm. that's going on? That's just an interesting thing. So they do because of like how we have the worldwide internet. And so we have social media. So you have all these people taking selfies and you know, to the detriment of themselves too, right? Because it just has people so focused on how they look. Hmm. And so they're constantly wanting to look good no matter where they go because they've got to take a selfie. Okay. So people are going to all sorts of events, but they're not even that plugged in because they are, you know, so busy with selfies. Interesting. But the other perspective is that a lot of people don't have spirituality because they can look it up on the World Wide Web. So why do you believe in something? So that has also contributed to narcissism. I don't need anybody because I can Google it. Okay. So So there's like a lack of genuine connection. As a society, mm -hmm. we've moved away from like person-to-person connection Mm -hmm. and this more image-conscious way of being in the world. Yeah very image conscious and so it has completely just cut strings of showing how important family is how important relationships are and so it's really just had us all kind of turn inwards instead of realizing that you can do both (laughs) yeah you know both are so important yeah yeah absolutely so if For people who are listening to this who might be identifying that they might have someone in their life who has narcissistic traits or somewhere on the less healthy side of the spectrum, what would your advice be to them? So I would definitely have them talk to somebody who is a specialist with domestic violence. Okay. Um, And you really can look that up like in psychology today Mm -hmm. um, because you want somebody that specializes because there are really a lot of intricacies to that kind of work 
And if you go to somebody who doesn't, they may skip a beat or they may not understand that there are certain things that could put someone in danger. Mm. And so if you go to someone who specializes with domestic violence or relational abuse, um, they know all the steps to assure safety. Mm. So I would recommend that if someone's in danger, there's the domestic violence hotline. Okay. So, and that is something that someone could um, access online, but they can also call. Okay. Yeah. And when you say that there's steps that they need to take to ensure safety, what are some of those steps that they need to be looking for for a clinician to be taking? So they need to, like for the clinician to do or the person? Well, I guess for the person to look for when they're asking a clinician questions, like what kind of steps that clinician should be taking and how to know. Because, I mean, I specialize in trauma Mm -hmm. right but i i wouldn't say that i specialize specifically in domestic violence Mm -hmm. if that makes sense oh yeah yeah. and so there's a difference between that where i think there's a lot of people who will say like yes i work with abuse recovery because that's a lot of what i do yeah but that's a different thing than working with someone who's in an actively um abusive marriage and living with this person you know and so um i could see people needing to ask questions to know if their therapist um knows how to guide them through that process because it's it is so delicate yeah so asking if they know you know how to safety plan yeah um the number one thing really is the safety plan because um i've just had clients before where they've been told that they need to leave right away and that's like the most dangerous thing because you really have to do an assessment of what their situation is like um and then from there you develop the safety plan because you have to see you know what their partner's up to what that partner schedules like you yeah. have to assess if the client's even able to do that yet mm-hmm. um, and so there's a lot of things like that you have to see um, you know if the shelters are open if they have beds so there's a lot of things that you really have to develop a safety plan so the safety plan would be the key. Okay, gotcha. You know, could you help me, yeah, create a good, you know, safety plan? Yeah. And so that is done, like, individually. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else do you think people should know? I would have to say the part about being supportive to somebody mm-hmm. who is in a situation And to not just leave them because they're not leaving the relationship. Because it looks so easy on the outside. Everybody always says, I would just leave. I don't understand it. But it's much more complicated than that. It's dangerous to leave. But also there's been a chemical dependence that has occurred because of the cycle of abuse. And so it's just that intricate. And it's not easy to leave. So for people who know someone in an abusive relationship, it's better to support them and to say, I love you no matter if you stay or if you leave, but I hate to see you hurting, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And So the, the old-fashioned ultimatum of I'm not going to see you anymore if you're in this relationship is not helpful for people. No. Yeah. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Because they need support. They also need to know, like, I am lovable. Yeah. And that I have this resource Mm -hmm. and that person can build their esteem back up. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I would really say is I think key. 
That's important because I'm sure, you know, as many people are listening to this and they might see themselves in this scenario, I, I know other people are going to see loved ones or friends or people that they're concerned about. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. yeah so it would be very good for them just to be supportive because you're right. That's kind of the archaic, um, you know, advice is mm-hmm. to do the tough love. And, you know, that makes them feel even more isolated. Yeah. And so it's just the opposite effect. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. That's great. So you mentioned um, you mentioned one book, which is what, The Sociopath? Next? Sociopath Next Door. Next Door. And that's by Martha Stout. Okay. And it's very interesting. Yeah. And it does describe hidden abuse very, very well. Okay. So that might be a good resource for people if they want to learn more. Yes, yes. About that. My favorite is Psychopath Free. And it's quite the severe title, but he also says... Yeah, imagine reading that on our bench, you know? <laughs> no. But I will say, being an older millennial, um, yeah. my generation is very into true crime. So okay. this, you really probably won't get that many weird books. <laughs> well, it's by Jackson McKenzie, so that's like the top, you know, title. But he also, like, subtitle has and emotional abuse and toxic relationships but psychopath free is very big but I really love that he wrote in detail everything you need to know and he's a survivor he's not a therapist but you would think he is yeah but he wrote so beautifully exactly like from you know a to z what you would need to know and then we have a local celebrity um, who's also a clinician, Shannon Thomas, and she wrote a book, Healing from Hidden Abuse. Mm. And so that's really good as well. So those would be the tops that I would say are really good. That's awesome. Yeah. So where can people find you? Um, I have an Instagram, and it's Shannon Higgins LPC. Okay. And then my website is unlockingfortitude.com. And then I just started Twitter, so I'm not sure Ooh. if anyone should be on there because <laughs> I just turned 50, so I'm not really good at all this stuff. That's brave. I'm not on Twitter. I think it's Mick Shan. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> it's okay. You can send us the link, and when we post this, we'll put we'll put all of your social media handles yeah, and your so website. Funny. And the only reason why I'm on Twitter is they did something for our seniors Aww. in high school, and so that's why I'm on there now. So there we go. such a good mom. <laughs> Getting so on it's Twitter, like McShan or something. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. Well, we like to wrap up every episode just talking about someone who is an encouragement to you, mm-hmm. right? And so we call that someone that is a firefly mm-hmm. in your life that's bringing light and inspiring you. So, who would that be for you right now? Um, it would be my mom, and I hope I don't tear up, but she died a year ago, Aww. and. But she is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. She raised me to be a social activist. Mm. Um, She did tutoring um, English as a second language for Vietnamese immigrants. And I would go with her. And she did, uh, she and her best friend started Dallas Right to Life um, years and years and years ago. Um, And then she also has done so many different Uh, social things for the poor she adopted a boy who had leukemia um, from a program that whenever he needed to come and this was I can't even remember I think it was the Wadley the 
blood wadley project or something like that this is that long ago i was so mm-hmm. little but they were very poor and from a very small town so for him in order to get very quality services you people in the city would adopt these children so that they could come and stay with them to get their treatments and so his whole family would come in and stay with us. So yeah. they became a family to us. Oh, wow. So, so not legally adopt them, but like adopt them as a family right. unit. Right, yeah. Them I should have the... said that. No, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so she was always doing something benevolent. Yeah. But she was doing it like so hands-on that like we became families to these people like we're still best friends with a Vietnamese family Mm -hmm. and you know it's just amazing so we never felt like we were above it all yeah um and so I just feel like she just will always still be my firefly Absolutely. Yeah. And she would be so proud of the work that you're doing now because you're mm-hmm. carrying that on. And mm-hmm. we, ha- we didn't even get into a lot of the work you do with your church and you're a really active mentor for girls in your youth group. So you help yeah. people at work and then you help people at home because you have family. You yeah. help people at church. Yeah. Um, I yeah. love my, they're seniors, so they're graduated. Oh, wow. I know, so I have tears there, too. But that's the way I had daughters, Yeah, is being a, a high school student minister leader. I love that. <laughs> I love that. So that was so, so fun. Yeah, yeah. I know. I loved it. Well, this is so informative. We will have to do a follow-up at some point because I'm sure people are going to have a lot of questions because I feel like we just, like, opened a big can of worms, you know, because there's so... I know. It is. You watch people's, like, the light bulbs go on in their head, right, where they're, they're like, wait. (laughs) I I know this, you know. (laughs) That other podcast I did was three-part because... It's just that complicated. Yeah. It's that complex. It's just full of information. Yeah. And I didn't realize that until I started doing the research. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to make you redo work that you've already done, but I'm sure we will have follow-up stuff for people. Um, And you're such a great resource. Thank you for doing the work that you do and for taking time to help put this information out in the world. Thank you. So that people can, can get help and you're obviously a great person to come see if this oh, is oh i love what y'all are doing with. we love it so thank you so much thank you and i love what y'all are doing because that is so cool doing the firefly did we talk too much or did i oh no you're doing great you've been listening to the firefly movement podcast If you know someone who's bringing light into the world, you can nominate them to be on our show at our website, fireflymovement.org. Also, please like, subscribe, and leave us a review so more people can find us. See you next time. Mm